0: Here we are with chapter five of um, the real book. Actually, no, I'm looking at that right now. This is actually chapter five of Tax-Free Wealth, How to Build Massive Wealth by Permanently Lowering Your Taxes. I am now on chapter five, which is Entrepreneurs and Investors Get All the Breaks. If you want more of something, subsidize it. Milton Friedman. In March 1995, I started my professional accounting practice. Over the years, my partners and I have enlarged the firm through marketing and acquisitions. My most notable acquisition was that of a Phoenix area tax practice in 2001. Earlier that year, I had been through a nasty partnership breakup with three other CPAs. Fortunately for me, about 50% of the clients stayed with my new partner and me, and all but one of the firm's employees stayed with us, meaning we had more workers than work. On top of this, later in the summer, one of my former graduate students came to me looking for work. She was a good student and I thought she'd make an excellent employee. We took the advice of Jim Collins in his excellent book, Good to Great, to put the right people on the bus and find them seats later. And despite having more workers in work, we hired her. The end result was that we had far more people to do work than we had actual work to do. So I started looking for a practice to acquire. One day, A card came in the mail from a business broker indicating that he had a couple of practices for sale in the Phoenix area. I called the broker and soon learned that one of the practices was a good fit for us. The practice did a a lot of high-end tax planning and had some high-quality clients. One of the clients was a good friend of mine, Kim Butler. Another client was Robert Kiyosaki. I hadn't previously heard of Robert Kiyosaki or the Rich Dad Company, but wanting to be well-versed on my clients, I immediately went out and purchased his best-selling book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I loved the book. Then I had lunch with my friend Kim Butler, who I knew had been doing some work with Robert, and asked her about him. She had nothing but good things to say about Robert and his organization. About the same time, I received a notice in the mail from one of my friends, George Duck, telling me, that he had just changed jobs. Amazingly, his new job was CFO of the Rich Dad Company. Was it a coincidence that all of these occurrences leading me to a great business relationship with Rich Dad happened at the same time? I really don't know. What I do know is that I've learned an enormous amount about teaching, money, and the economy from Robert and Kim Kiyosaki. One of the first things I learned about was the cash flow quadrant. The cash flow quadrant separates income-earners into four quadrants. On the left side are the employee, E, and the self-employed individuals, S. On the right side are big business, B, and investors, I. When I first saw the diagram, my thoughts naturally went to the tax consequences and benefits of being in each of the quadrants. I quickly realized that those who earned their income from the left side of the quadrant pay much higher taxes than those who earned their income from the right side of the quadrant. Over the years, since learning or since first learning about the cash flow quadrant, I've continued to look at the tax law and apply it to the diagram. The reason why I the reason why those on the B and I side of the quadrant pay so much less in tax than those on the E and S side has become clear to me. It's because that's what Congress or Parliament wanted. Think about the goals of Congress, Parliament, or any other governing body for that, matter. for that matter. The government wants to encourage certain activities, and they have two ways of doing that, either by force or by policy. And as we quoted in the beginning of the chapter, it was the great economist Milton Friedman who said, if you want more of something, Subsidize it. The easiest and most efficient way to subsidize something is through the tax law. Over the years, it's not only become easier to subsidize through the tax law, but it's also become the way a government steers the country's economic behavior, as shown in rule number five. Rule number five. The tax law is a series of incentives for entrepreneurs and investors. Hello, Dodeca. So what does the government want? First, they want to create more jobs. Who creates jobs? Entrepreneurs. Therefore, entrepreneurs get all sorts of tax, tax breaks that act as subsidies to encourage job creation. What else does the government want? Affordable housing. Real estate investors get all sorts of tax, tax breaks that act as subsidies to encourage building of affordable housing. Sometimes, governments make the mistake of thinking they can create jobs or build housing better than the free market. Eventually, they realize that the market does a better job and it costs the government a lot less to give tax benefits to business owners and investors than it does to add jobs or build housing through government-sponsored programs. The government wants to create more jobs, provide affordable housing. Who creates more jobs and provides affordable housing? Entrepreneurs, real estate investors, and both receive tax breaks to encourage job creation or to encourage housing. It's because of these goals that government gives entrepreneurs and investors all the tax breaks they get. Governments even get more specific about the types of investing and jobs they want the market to create by giving specific tax breaks for oil and gas investing, farming, and other agriculture, green energy, and low-income housing. CAUTION! Don't start a business just for the tax benefits. Hello, Bobby. CAUTION! Don't start a business just for the tax benefits. One. To get tax benefits, the business must be real and intended to make a profit. Two, paying taxes is less expensive than failing at business. Be sure to get educated before you begin. It's not really that those on the E and S side or employee and self-employed side of the cash flow quadrant are punished. They just don't get the rewards, i.e. subsidies that are given to those on the B and I side of the quadrant If you want to know what the government wants to see happen in your country, take a look at the tax law. where, Where are all of the incentives going? That's where the government wants you to put your money and your effort. That's why I say it's more patriotic to arrange your affairs to pay less in taxes. When you do so, you're actually doing what the government wants you to do, creating jobs, building housing, and other useful buildings, and producing food and energy. So there's an interesting thing. Um, I know that it's in here. This is what the the cash flow quadrant looks like. So E and S are on the left side, which are employee and self-employed, and B and I are on the right side, which is business or big business and investor. That's the cash flow quadrant. The capitalist manifesto. become one of my favorite books. Um, okay, so, continuing. There is even more good news for entrepreneurs and investors. When you follow the government's rules in order to get your tax benefits, you also receive other benefits and make more money. Let me share an example of this. Something just keeps popping into my mind, by the way, the only half a percent of the tax law Is um, dedicated to things other than what the 95.5% of the tax law is written. The tax law is actually written to save money on taxes. There were five rules that, or four rules that I had read earlier when I read the first four chapters, and these rules are very interesting and eye opening. Number one, it's your money, not the government. Rule number two, the tax law is written primarily to reduce your taxes. Rule number three, the fastest way to put money in your pocket is to reduce your taxes. And rule number four, everything you do either increases or lowers your taxes. There's some interesting rules there. All right. Continuing. A new client of mine was very anxious to reduce his income taxes. I'd already told him that any expense could be deductible, given the right situation. He and his wife were huge fans of New Mexico because of its serene beauty and they traveled there often. Since they traveled to New Mexico so frequently, my client wanted to use their travel as a tax deduction. I explained that he had to make the travel relate to his business in order to make it deductible under the law. He was very excited the next time I saw him. I could tell he had a story for me. He explained that he and his wife took a trip to New Mexico and that since they wanted to deduct the travel, they spent much of their time looking for real estate deals, and they found one. In fact, this real estate deal was so good that he expected it would net him over $1 million before taxes. While he was excited about the $3,000 in taxes he was going to save because he turned his travel into a tax-deductible business trip, he was even more excited about the $1 million he was going to make from the deal. Tax Tip Put your family to work. Make your business a family business. Then, when you travel for business, your family's travel is deductible, and you can shift income from your higher tax bracket to their lower tax bracket. This creates permanent tax savings. Congress understands that when people spend time, money, and effort on business, those people will make money, and they understand that money produces jobs housing, and even more tax revenue for the government. Even with good planning, the $1 million that my client makes on his real estate deal will result in $300,000 in tax revenue for the U.S. government. That deal would never have happened without the $3,000 tax incentive given for the trip, and making $300,000 on $3,000 is a good deal in anyone's book. Of course, the deal wouldn't have happened if my client hadn't understood how to turn the cost of that trip into a tax deduction. You might be thinking, that sounds great, but what about me? I'm on the E and S side of the cash flow quadrant. The truth is that these business deductions aren't available to you, but they can be. You just need to shift some of your income earning activities to the B and I side of the quadrant. Thankfully, that's not difficult to do. Thousands of individuals all over the world have home-based businesses or invest in real estate, energy, or agriculture, and they all enjoy the benefits that come from saving money through the tax code. Hmm. There we go. All right. Uh, Okay. All right. So, thankfully, that's not difficult to do. Thousands of individuals all over the world have home based businesses or invest in real estate. All right. Uh, Okay. All right. So, Thankfully, that's not difficult to do. Thousands of individuals all over the world have home-based businesses or invest in real estate. Was that why I'm chasing the farmhouse? Yes. Um, thousands of individuals all over the world have home-based businesses or invest in real estate, energy, or agriculture, and they all enjoy the benefits that come from saving money. The date. Was that why I'm chasing the farmhouse? Yes. Um, Thousands of individuals all over the world have home-based businesses or invest in real estate, energy, or agriculture, and they all enjoy the benefits that come from saving money through the tax code. And you don't have to spend all of your time and money in business or investing to enjoy those benefits. You just need to get started. But before you do, you're going to want to do some planning. That's what we'll talk about next. Chapter 5, Key Points. The Cash Flow Quadrant Tax Code. And you don't have to spend all of your time and money in business or investing to enjoy those benefits. You just need to get started. But before you do, you're going to want to do some planning. That's what we'll talk about next. Chapter five, key points. The cash flow quadrant, which is this right here, employer, self-employed, business, and investor. The cash flow quadrant is a terrific diagram that shows you the four ways people earn income, which has huge, which is this right here, employer, self-employed, business, and investor. The cash flow quadrant is a terrific diagram that shows you the four ways people earn income, which has huge implications for your taxes. Those on the E and S side of the quadrant don't experience the tax benefits. So those on the E and S side of the quadrant don't experience the tax benefits of those on the B and I side unless they behave like the B and I side. And governments. 3. Governments steer economic behavior through the tax code. They reward desired behavior with tax breaks. That's why reducing your taxes is actually patriotic. Four, you can easily shift the way you earn income to the B and I side of the cash flow quadrant and begin enjoying the tax breaks. Tax strategy number five. Put your family to work in your business and investing. One of the great tax benefits of existing on the B and I side of the cash flow quadrant is the ability to legally shift income to your children. Children are taxpayers too, and they have their own tax brackets when it comes to earned income, which is income they work for. When they earn income through an outside job, they pay tax at their own rates. Kids can also earn income from working in the family business or from investments. The nice thing about having your children work for you is that you get a tax deduction at your higher tax bracket for the payroll, and they report the income at their lower tax bracket. My long-term friend and client did this with his 9-year-old daughter. He put her to work doing the bookkeeping for his real estate investments. She is a very intelligent 9-year-old and has no problem understanding the bookkeeping. Her mother, who is in charge of their real estate, supervises her. She gets a reasonable wage for her work, as compared to other bookkeepers. In a year, she might earn $4,000. That $4,000 will be a deduction to her parents. She doesn't earn any other income, and the standard deduction is more than $4,000, so she doesn't pay any tax. In my client's 40% tax bracket, that $4,000 in pay to their daughter means a tax savings of $1,600. Now, for the best part, My client's daughter is learning how to do bookkeeping and becoming part of their business. She is gaining a skill that will benefit her for her entire life. And she is beginning to understand real estate investing. No wonder Congress allows this type of planning. In fact, Congress not only allows it, but also encourages it. My friend gets a tax break on Social Security taxes as well for employing his daughter instead of employing someone else to do the bookkeeping. He doesn't have to pay any Social Security taxes on her wages. So don't hesitate to put your children to work in your business. There are great tax benefits for you, huge educational benefits for them, and you have someone in place to take over when you are ready to retire. What an incredible exit strategy. It's one that the rich have known about for years and years. That's how they keep their money in the family and keep the business going after they are gone. Okay, that was the end of chapter 5 and the next chapter is chapter 6 which is labeled, you can deduct almost anything. So Chapter 6 in tax-free wealth, how to build massive wealth by permanently lowering your taxes. Chapter six, you can deduct almost anything. I would like to electrocute everyone who uses the word fair in connection with income tax policies. William F. Buckley, Jr. I would like to electrocute everyone who uses the word fair in connection with income tax policies. William F. Buckley Jr. All right, William F. Buckley. Welcome, Dickie. Hello. Stop being average. Taxes aren't fair to the average taxpayer. Just who is the average taxpayer? The average taxpayer has a job, a family, and a mortgage or rent. The average taxpayer has little to no financial education The average taxpayer gets his advice from CNN and H&R Block. The average taxpayer's only available tax benefits are the standard deduction or a few itemized deductions, such as home mortgage interest and charitable contributions. Oh, and of course, a 401k or IRA in the U.S. or RRSP in Canada to postpone a portion of their tax burden until retirement. The reality is that average taxpayers have average tax benefits. Average taxpayers come to me from time to time asking for my advice. They ask how they can reduce their taxes. Should they put more into their 401K? Should they buy a bigger house? While they're at it, should they have more children? My answer to these folks is that as long as they're living the life of an average taxpayer, there's nothing much I can do for them. The solution is to stop being average. Instead, become an above average or super taxpayer. Start doing what Congress or Parliament wants you to do by contributing more to the economy. The good news is that you're on your way to becoming a far better than average taxpayer just by reading this book, Good Sell Buddy. Um, You're gaining financial intelligence with each page you read. When you apply the concepts you learn here, you will really take off. Like most professionals. I started advising people on what to do regarding their taxes long before I followed my own advice. Even before finishing graduate school, I gave people tax advice. I told business owners how to reduce their tax even though I didn't own a business. I told real estate investors how to increase their deductions long before I owned any real estate of my own. Was the advice good? Sure. I was a smart kid who'd applied himself at school and learned the law. Was the advice great? No. No. How could I possibly give great advice to other people when I'd never applied what I'd learned in school to my own situation? It wasn't until I started my own business and later began investing in real estate that I really began giving great advice to business owners and investors. Once I applied my knowledge in my own life, I finally understood my clients' business and businesses and gave them top-notch advice. The more I personally applied my knowledge, the better I became at giving advice to others. The same will be true for you. Once you start applying the concepts of this book in your own life, you'll start to see how it all works. Once you begin reaping the rewards of lower taxes and more cash flow, you'll better understand what you've learned while at the same time reaping all the benefits of your knowledge. That's called wisdom. So what's the first step to becoming a super taxpayer? Understanding rule number six. All right, before I go to rule number six, what was rule number five? Did I miss that? Oh, there we go. Okay, so I'm going to write this down in my book. Remember, there were four rules that I read at the outset in a review when I first started this chapter, and I'll review those four rules, and then I'm going to um, read rule number five and six. So, rule number one is, rule number one is, it's your money, not the government's. And why do they say that in rule number one? Because I just learned that 0.5% or half a percent of the tax code is actually written about uh, about getting taking taxes, whereas the other 95.5% of the tax code is actually written for you to legally avoid paying taxes. That's why they say also um, tax avoidance, which is the legal way to do it, as opposed to tax um, evasion. Tax evasion is illegal and tax avoidance is legal. So rule number one, it's your money, not the government's. Rule number two, The tax law is written primarily to reduce your taxes. Rule number three, the fastest way to put money in your pocket is to reduce your taxes. Number four, everything you do either increases or lowers your taxes. And rule number five that I have to write down here is the tax law is a series of incentives for entrepreneurs and investors. So that's interesting. The tax law is a series of incentives for entrepreneurs and investors. And remember he talked about that um, people, many people have home-based businesses or work from home businesses that you can apply these laws with. So the tax law is a series of incentives for entrepreneurs And investors. That's number five. And then finally, where we're at now, um, he says so what's the first step to becoming a super taxpayer? Understanding rule number six, which was the title of this uh, chapter, which is you can deduct almost anything given the right circumstances. You can deduct almost anything which is what I do actually, given the right circumstances. Given the right circumstances. So you can deduct anything given the right circumstances. Good, I finished writing it down. Moving on to the next. Continuing, it's true. Almost any expense can be deductible from your income given the right situation. How can that be possible? It's how the law works. Remember when I said that the tax laws for entrepreneurs and investors, or I'm sorry, remember when I said that the tax laws favor entrepreneurs and investors? That's because entrepreneurs and investors generally put money into the economy to produce rather than consume. The key to making an expense deductible is to make it a business or investment expense. As long as the purpose of the expense is to produce more income, it can be deductible. Once again, as long as the purpose of the expense is to produce more income, it can be deductible. For example, when I pay for gas for my car, the purpose of that expense of paying for gas is to produce more income, meaning so that I can drive more for Uber. When I pay my insurance, the purpose of that expense is to produce more income for my Uber driving. It can be deductible. When I pay for my car payment to keep my car, That is the purpose of that is to produce more income, and therefore it's deductible. See where I'm going with that? And I'm just applying that for my own situation. Continuing, and yes, this principle applies worldwide. All income taxes in developed countries are based on net income, which is simply income after deductions. And deductions come from expenses. Business expenses are the best kind of deductions. Real estate expenses are the next best. Depending on your country, chances are that expenses relating to energy are good as well. Welcome, Vlad. Even expenses related to investing in the stock market may be partially deductible, though these are the least deductible because they aren't active investments. Your first step to increasing your deductible expenses is to become an entrepreneur or investor. By the way, guys, if, if one of the ways that I learned a while ago about being able to deduct the car like in, in part or in whole is simply because I have my business um, website on my car and advertise, basically an, an advertisement showing where people can go to one of my websites to promote my business because one of the things that I earn money from is ad revenue from people listening to my podcast. So if I give them a put the link to my website address on my car and they go there and listen to the podcast, then the podcast generates money through ad revenue through that. So that's another way of creating deductions for a vehicle. And most of my deductions come from my vehicle and other cleaning supplies for my cleaning business, so on and so forth, but I won't get into that now. So again, continuing. Your first step to increasing your deductible expenses is to become an entrepreneur or investor. Until you take this step, You'll always be an average taxpayer, and the tax laws will be stacked against you. The good news is that you don't have to quit your job. You just have to start acting like an entrepreneur or an investor. That means the first thing you need to do is increase your financial intelligence by investing in financial education. Starting a business or investing in a deal without financial education is the riskiest action you can take with respect to your money. Become an entrepreneur. Here's my advice whenever starting out. Start small. Take a course in real estate or some other type of investing. Take a course in entrepreneurship. Start a home-based business, preferably dealing with something you know about. That's how I first got started. Many years ago, after I'd left public accounting and became the in-house tax advisor for a Fortune 1000 company, I decided to go back into public accounting. I missed the clients and I missed the challenge but in that transition, I made a bad decision and took the wrong job with the wrong company. Seven months later, I was fired. For the first time in my life, I'd failed at a job and a job had failed me. It turned out to be one of the best days of my life. I suddenly realized that not having a job freed me up to do what I'd always wanted to do, start my own business. I had a master's degree and 13 years of experience as a tax advisor. It was time to start my own firm. With the encouragement of my wife and two young sons i did just that starting my firm out of my house i worked 10 hours a day to make contacts and build my practice it took me nine months just to get my first four clients since then i never looked back i've never been happier in my work and i've never paid less in taxes i'm not suggesting you get fired or quit your job but i am suggesting that you probably have a set of marketing skills, of marketable skills, that you could use to start your own business. Start part-time. Set aside a room in your house for your business. Don't spend money on a nice office and lots of advertising. Just start small and think big. Think about the freedom that will come when you, when you can devote most, if not all, of your time to your business, your investments, and your family. And it all starts with good tax planning. When you start a business, your options for deductible expenses skyrocket. And making most of your expenses deductible is easy. Make sure that when you spend money, your intention is to make even more money. Once again, make sure that when you spend money, your intention is to make even more money. The U.S. tax law calls this having a business purpose for your expenses. Then be careful with your money. Don't spend money on stupid stuff. Spend it on things that will likely grow your business. Spend it on things that other people in your business might buy. This is called making expenditures that are ordinary in your line of business. Make your expenses count. Make them work for you. When you do that, your expenses become necessary. And when your expenses are necessary, voila, they're deductible become an active investor. Now, let's suppose that you don't want to start a business, but you still want to be a super taxpayer. What do you do? You become an investor. Remember that the right side of the cash flow quadrant includes both business owners and investors. But there's one catch. You can't be a typical investor if you're going to enjoy the tax benefits of investing. You have to become an active investor investor. That means you have to be an investor who actively invests for passive income, not earned income. Very simply, passive income is income that comes from dividends, rents, and business. It's taxed at a much lower rate than earned income, which comes from appreciation and capital gains or from your paycheck. In order to become a super investor, you must find good cash flowing investments that produce passive income. A great book to read on this topic is the book Robert Kiyosaki and I wrote together, Why the Rich Are Getting Richer, Plata Publishing, 2017. Wait, you wrote that with him? Oh, yeah, Tom Rua. Oh, that's right. He was his adjutant in that book. That's the book that I finished reading last week, Why the Rich Get Richer. Actually, really good book. Um, Must find good cash flow Investment investing produce passive income. All right, continuing. You might be thinking that becoming an active investor sounds hard it's not. Becoming an active investor is actually quite simple, just as with becoming an entrepreneur. It all starts with your financial education. You don't need a four-year degree in finance. You don't even need a two-year degree, but you do need to take some courses in the type of investing you think you might enjoy. Don't know what you like or don't know what you might like? Take a variety of courses on a variety of investments. Take a course in real estate. Take a course in stock investing and take a course in business investing. You never know what you'll like until you learn about it. A great resource for becoming an active investor is educational programs offered by the Rich Dad Company. Learn more at www.wealthability.com. Once you have an idea of what type of investing you want to do, find a mentor or coach to help you with your investing. Then simply start investing. Just as I advised with starting a business, start small. Do one small real estate deal, a couple of small stock market trades, or make a small investment in a private company. You don't have to risk a lot of time and money. And along the way, so long as you keep track of all your education and investment expenses and your tax preparer reports them properly, you should be able to deduct some or all of these expenses on your tax return. There's a little flow chart here and it shows a few things says, start thinking about becoming a super investor. Start small, start part time. So, 3A, think about your marketable skills for business. 3B, or think about the types of investing you might enjoy. 4, take a course. 5, find, uh, find a mentor. And 6, take action. The passive investor. There is one other type of super taxpayer. That's the passive investor. And no, I'm not talking about the typical investor who invests in the stock market through a mutual fund or an exchange-traded fund, ETF. I'm talking about someone who invests their money with an active investor who is working directly in a business, real estate, agriculture, or energy, the tax-preferred types of investments. Passive investors also enjoy the tax be- the benefit of deducting many of their expensive- expenses. With the right tax strategy, they can even deduct losses from the investment against income they earn from other sources. Welcome back, Vlad. The key to good passive investing is a good team. You need a great investment advisor and a stellar tax advisor, as well as a good lawyer and a knowledgeable banker. All of these team members need to work together to make sure your best interests are met i found the best way to get team members to work well together is to hire a wealth strategist. This can be one of the advisors on the team or a separate strategist altogether. The strategist can work to maintain relationships between you and the other team members. And again, they have a nice little picture of that. There's you, there's a banker, there's a tax advisor, there's a bookkeeper, an investment advisor, legal counsel, your strategist. Helps bring it all together. Continuing. In many countries, only certain individuals are allowed to be pass- are allowed to be passive investors. In the United States, these individuals are called accredited investors. Accredited investors meet certain minimum wealth and earning guidelines set up by the government. In Australia, these are called sophisticated investors or professional investors. There are always minimum wealth requirements and in some countries there are additional certification rules. The thinking is that if you have enough money, you either have a high enough financial education to properly evaluate a deal or you can afford to lose some of your money. Either way, you qualify under the government guidelines for being a passive investor. While the losses and expenses of a passive investor can be deductible, the rules can be a little tricky. If you're thinking of going this route, be sure to sit down with your tax advisor and let him or her know what you are planning so that he or she can explain the rules to you and make sure you get the benefit of your expenses and losses. Caution, don't be cheap with your team members. One, you often get what you pay for with team members. Two, low fees don't translate into a good deal when it comes to advisors. A good team member is worth their weight in gold. Some of this may be overwhelming for some people, and if you're going to start small, you may not have these people at first, so start small without the team members as much as you can. But I believe a tax advisor an accountant and or accountant or even a tax lawyer um, are some of the best ways to start if you can only start with one document everything. The last key to becoming a super taxpayer is excellent documentation. All good tax planning also leads to sound business and investment decisions. One of the best businesses, one of the best business or investment decisions you can make is to keep good documentation of your income and expenses. This means that you keep accurate books and records. Make sure your bookkeeping is up to date at least once each week. The more thorough and accurate your accounting, the better business and investment decisions you'll make and the less likelihood you will have difficulties in an audit. Tax tip, document, document, document. The IRS, Revenue Canada, the HMRC, ATO, and other tax collectors love documentation. Remember that if you pretend to document a deduction, you get a pretend deduction. If you decide to start a business, even though you are starting small, as advised earlier in this chapter, think about your business as if it were one of the big dogs, such as IBM or Microsoft. Think about all of the good reporting they need to do in order to stay in business and to keep investors, bankers, and management informed about what's going on. You can do the same with your small startup business that you run out of your home office. When you do, chances are the IRS, CRA, or other tax officials will be in and out of your life quickly and painlessly if you're ever audited. You'll also have accurate financial information to help you make to make wise and informed business and investment decisions. Best of all, your expenses will be deductible, and you won't have to worry about whether the government will allow them. Why? Because you followed the law exactly as it was meant to be applied. The result will be lower taxes and less stress. So now you know what I mean when I say that almost every expense can be deductible under the right circumstances. Okay, so now you know what I mean when I say that almost every expense can be deductible under the right circumstances. Every time you spend money, you can also reduce your taxes, whether it's filling up your car at the gas station, that's the big one for me, going out to dinner with your spouse and business partner, or even going to New Mexico to look at real estate. The basic difference between an average taxpayer and a super taxpayer is how serious they are about increasing their wealth. An average taxpayer turns his or her money over to someone else and hopes and prays that their investments go up in value. The super taxpayer is actively involved in creating wealth, either through actively investing in a business, real estate, or the stock market, or through actively seeking out active investors who will do that for them. Super taxpayers also build a great team of advisors, mentors, and other relationships who actively help them build their wealth and reduce their taxes. Here's a chart illustrating the basic difference between an average taxpayer and a super taxpayer. Pretty simple, isn't it? So the average taxpayers there on the left shows income goes to taxes, then to expenses, and that equals their cash flow. And then look at this, super taxpayer income, they pay the expenses first, then taxes and cash flow. And that's what one big thing a lot of people don't understand is that you can actually pay your expenses first and then get taxed on it afterwards. And that's one of the big ways you can save money. And in an LLC, like I have, my company is an LLC. Um, you can structure it as a sole proprietorship or either that or as a S corporation, a C corporation, or even a limited partnership. So there's different ways you can structure the tax flow through. <clears throat> Next, we're going to look at the king of all deductions, depreciation. Chapter six, key points. Number one, most people are average taxpayers who only experience average tax benefits. Number two, the key to saving more in taxes is becoming a super taxpayer and enjoying the benefits of deductible expenses. Number three, the best way to enjoy deductible expenses is to start a business or to start investing for passive income. You don't have to quit your job just start small and number four one of the best business and investing practices is to document your income and expenses and to document them well tax strategy number six document 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 being able to immediately provide documentation upon request during an audit is always an impressive tactic if your activities and expenses are properly documented the tax collector will have a hard time making a case for any changes. Plus, having your documentation in place reduces the amount of time your CPA bills you for an audit. Documentation is a successful defense strategy that enables you to always be ready for an audit and reduces the associated costs. Documentation of receipts has been made a lot easier with computers. Now you can scan your receipts into your computer. This way you don't have to to have a file drawer just for receipts and you don't have to worry about them uh, fading over time. Have you ever pulled out a credit card receipt that was a year or two old only to find a blank piece of paper? This happens all the time. What if you were being audited and went to pull those receipts only to find that they were all just blank pieces of paper? Be sure to scan the receipts into a file on your computer. The IRS loves it when they can just look at scanned receipts instead of going through faded paper receipts. You will learn more about documentation in Chapter 22 when we talk about IRS audits. Just remember that this is one tax strategy you can do every day, and it doesn't take much time or effort. That's the end of Chapter 6. Let's look at how many pages I have in Chapter 7 and how much time I have to look at this if I'm going to do it at all. Yep. So it's just a short few pages here. So I'm going to move on to Chapter 7. And then I'll be done because I have about 10 minutes. 10 minutes? 10 pages? I can do that. All right. Chapter 7 is known as Depreciation, the King of All Deductions. All right. So, there's a quote The avoidance of taxes is the only intellectual pursuit. That carries any reward. John Maynard Keynes. The Magic of Depreciation. Several years ago, not long after I met him, Robert Kiyosaki asked me to come with him to an interview at the Arizona Republic. The topic was investing. The journalist was interested in Robert's claim that anyone could earn 30 to 40 percent on their investments. Robert wanted me there as backup. I think it was the first time in history that an accountant had been brought along as the muscle. After the interview, Robert and I walked over to the Arizona Center to have lunch. On the way, he asked me, what do you think about depreciation? Depreciation is like magic, I told him. You get a deduction for something that doesn't cost you any money. You create money out of thin air. And that really is the magic of depreciation. When you buy an asset that produces income, you can deduct a portion of it each year you own it. If it's a physical asset, such as as real estate or equipment, for me, in my case, it's my car. The deduction is called depreciation. If it's an intangible asset, one you can't feel or touch, such as a customer list or a computer software, the deduction is called amortization. But in the end, the benefit is the same. Types of deduction for income producing assets. Examples, depreciation, tangible assets such as real estate or equipment, amortization, intangible assets such as customer list or computer software. Chez Pierre, let me explain. Let's say for instance that my friend Pierre buys a commercial building in which to house his restaurant. Chez Pierre. Due to the magic of depreciation, he gets to take a deduction for a portion of the cost of that building every year for a set number of years. How many years depends on the type of building he's purchased and the country in which he lives. He gets to do this even though the building may not wear out for hundreds of years and may actually increase in value. That's why I call depreciation magic. You get a deduction that, ha- that really hasn't cost you anything. Sure, Pierre paid for the building, but the building isn't going down in value. In fact, over the long term, in most cases, it will go up in value. And if Pierre is a smart investor, the building costs are covered by the cash flow the building generates. So Pierre isn't really paying anything out of pocket for this expense, and he might even be making money. Despite all this, Pierre still gets to take advantage of depreciation a deduction that was created specifically to encourage people to buy and construct buildings and equipment. You might be asking, why would the government want to encourage this type of investment? It's simple. Remember that Congress slash Parliament want industry that creates jobs, and they also want the market to create housing and commercial buildings. Depreciation is one of the major catalysts for businesses and investors to do just that. Let's get back to our example of my friend Pierre and his restaurant. Let's say that let's say Pierre pays $1 million for his building, including the land. The land by itself is worth $220,000. Because even the government understands that land doesn't wear out. There isn't a depreciation deduction for the portion of the price that relates to the land. Still, that leaves $780,000 to depreciate. That means that every year Pierre will get a deduction equal to a set portion of the $780,000. How much Pierre gets to deduct depends on how fast the government will let Pierre depreciate the building. In the United States, for instance, commercial buildings are currently depreciated over 39 years. That means that Pierre would get a deduction each year of $20,000 for 39 years. That's $780,000 divided by 39. That's about 2.5% per year. In Canada, the depreciation rate or capital cost allowance is almost double that of the United States at 5% and even higher in some cases. Imagine a deduction of $40,000 per year that doesn't cost you anything out of pocket. Sure, you may have interest expense for the loan or certain out of pocket expenses associated with maintenance, but those expenses are also deductible. The actual building cost is a non-cash expense, an expense that doesn't reduce your cash flow that gives you a deduction. Even better, you not only get a deduction for the money you put into the building, but you also get a deduction for the money the bank puts into the building. That's right, you get a depreciation deduction for the entire cost of the building, even if you borrowed all the cash to pay for it from someone else. Now that's what I call magic. And believe it or not, it gets even more amazing. When Pierre bought the land and the building, he also bought what was inside the building and the landscaping and other improvements outside of the building, such as the fencing or the parking lot. He bought all of the floor coverings, the window coverings, the cabinetry, and more. So a portion of the $780,000 price tag for the building really applies to these other items. This is important because these other items can be depreciated faster than the building putting more money into his pocket, faster. One of the keys to taking full advantage of depreciation is to quickly get as much of your deduction as you can. The more deductions you can get today, the more money you can put in your pocket. And the more money you have in your pocket today, the more money you have to invest back into your business or other investments. Let's say that of the $780,000 price tag for the building, $100,000 really belongs to the cabinets. Floor coverings, window coverings, and other things that came with the building but aren't really a part of it. This one hundred thousand dollars is depreciated much faster than the building. Instead of getting a two point five to five percent deduction each year, Pierre will get a twenty percent or more deduction each year for this portion of his purchase. That's another twenty thousand dollars each year in deductions. In total, Pierre gets a deduction each year of about thirty-seven thousand five hundred dollars. That's six hundred and eighty thousand divided by 39 years, plus 100,000 times 20%, which means that 37,500 of his restaurant income won't be taxable, and this can pay off in a big way. So that's what deductions are. Deductions are you deduce or you deduct the expenses and depreciation, in this case, from the amount of income that you earn. So if you earn $100 and you have depreciations and uh, expenses that cost 55 that means you only pay taxes on the $45 that's left. Avoid the tax collector's traps. This is a tax tip. The trick is to properly document the values of all the items you depreciate in a cost segregation or chattel appraisal. Even better, you have a tax, have a tax professional or engineer document them for you. Without it, the tax collector can make your tax savings from depreciation disappear. Protect your tax savings with good documentation. Pick your bracket. Let's say Pierre is in a tax bracket where his income is taxed at 40%. The depreciation deductions save him $15,000 that he can put back into his business or invest somewhere else every year, or he could use the money to take a very nice vacation. After all, he's been working hard in the restaurant and deserves a break. Isn't it nice that the government is paying for his vacation? Wouldn't you like the government to pay for your vacation? Or even better, wouldn't you like the government to subsidize your business by giving you big depreciation deductions? Of course, you don't only get depreciation deductions for buildings, you also get them for equipment. In many countries, this includes your car, so long as you use it primarily for business. I use my car a lot for business. It could even include the portion of your house that you use for an office. There are tons of possibilities. Depreciation really is free money from the government because if you're a smart investor or business person, you're going to make money from the buildings and equipment you purchase. Buildings and equipment you purchase, and even though you're profiting from your purchases, you still get a tax deduction for them. How cool is that? That is why I call depreciation the king of all deductions. In essence, the government pays you for making money and being productive. Real estate investing and depreciation. Depreciation doesn't apply only to regular businesses. It also applies to real estate investing. Let's say that you don't want to be a business owner. Instead, you want to invest in real estate. Obviously, there are great financial benefits to being a real estate investor. You buy a property property, mostly with the bank's money, and get a tenant to pay enough in rent to not only make your payments to the bank but also pad your pockets a little bit. And if you buy your real estate right, chances are it will increase in value over time. The tax benefits of long-term real estate investing can be equal to or even greater than the cash flow and increase in value appreciation from your properties. Let's say that Pierre, in addition to buying a building for his restaurant, decides that he wants to invest in real estate. He would, like to, he would like to buy a small apartment building. After a diligent search, he finds a good fit for his investment strategy, paying $800,000 for a great apartment building and its land. His cash flow from the apartment totals $12,000 a year after paying the bank and all the other expenses. The land is worth $200,000, so the building and its contents are worth $600,000. Let's suppose that $100,000 of the 600000 is for the contents and 500000 is for the building. Depreciation in the United States on a residential property is about 3.6% per year. This means that Pierre will get a deduction for the building of about $18,000 and another $20,000 of depreciation on the contents, 20%, remember, each year. That's a total of $38,000. All right, there are some examples here that are in graphs, I'm not gonna go through that, but I'll continue in the text part. Since his cash flow from the apartment is only $12,000, when he subtracts the depreciation expense, Pierre ends up with a loss for tax purposes of $26,000. So Pierre's $12,000 of cash flow is entirely tax-free. In addition, Pierre has $26,000 of loss to use against other income. If Pierre Pierre is in a 40% tax bracket, this $26,000 of loss will create a tax refund for him of over $10,000. Again, Pierre can use that money to reinvest in his business or in real estate, or he can take a vacation, improve his house, or do anything else he wants to do. After all, it's his money. In Pierre's case, the government essentially paid him to invest in real estate, and they'll do the same for you. You can get the government to subsidize your business and your real estate or pay for your vacation or home improvements simply through the magic of depreciation. It's just a small, just a small note here. In some countries, depreciation is called capital cost allowance. It's a different name for the same thing. Don't be fooled by the language. The same principles are at work. The magic of amortization. Now, let's say that you buy something that isn't a physical item. It's what we call an intangible. This means that you can't touch it. It could be a customer list, computer software, or a trademark or patent. Your government wants to subsidize your purses and does so through a rule very similar to depreciation called amortization. Amortization is magical too. In fact, the only practical difference between amortization and depreciation is in the name. The principles are the same. You get to take a deduction for a portion of the cost of the asset over a period of years. Caution. Remember your tax return elections. One, you must elect to deduct amortization. Two, some amortization elections have to be clearly stated on your tax return in the year you first start using your intangible property. In the United States, that period of time ranges from three to 15 years. Other countries have different terms for amortizing non-physical or intangible assets, but the rule works the same, just the same as depreciation. Let's say, for example, that Pierre buys a bunch of recipes from another chef. This chef created some secret recipes that people love, and Pierre would like to utilize them to improve his business. Pierre pays $75,000 for the recipes. Pierre gets to take a deduction for the cost of those recipes over 15 years. That amounts to a deduction of $5,000 every year. And all the while, Pierre is making oodles of money using the recipes to create wonderful food that he sells at his restaurant. He may even license his recipes and let other people use them. And he might make even more money from licensing than he does from his restaurant. And still, the government gives him a tax deduction each year for a portion of the cost of the recipes. Isn't amortization great? Don't cheat yourself. Every so often, I see a tax return from a new real estate-owning client that doesn't show depreciation. And it's not because the client hasn't owned the real estate for 40 years. No, it's because for some reason the client or his or her accountant didn't take the depreciation deduction. This is not only wrong, it's also stupid. Why not take the deduction? If you don't, you're in essence cheating yourself. It makes no sense to me, but I see it at least once a month. What's more, I rarely see a breakdown of the different components of a building on a new client's tax return. When you purchase a building, you really purchase the land, the building, the land improvements, and the contents of the building. Just like Pierre did when he purchased the building to house his restaurant or when he purchased his apartment building. Every investor should break out the land improvements and the contents of the building from the portion of the cost that related to the land and the building. What's inside of the building should be separated from the physical structure of the tax on the tax return. Usually, I just see land, building, and whatever equipment the client purchased after he or she bought the building. This means that the taxpayer's tax preparer was too lazy or uneducated to break out the component parts of the purchase. Breaking out the component parts of the building is called a cost segregation or chattel appraisal. How dumb is this? The client's tax return preparer has postponed the deductions to a much later year and penalized the client because of of laziness. Instead of getting his money back from the government now, the client has to wait for several years. Remember, it's your money. Don't let the government have it any longer than needed. Can you now see why I devoted an entire chapter to this magical deduction called depreciation? Nothing is better than a deduction you don't have to pay for. And nowhere do I see more mistakes made on tax returns than when it comes to this critical deduction. Take advantage of what the government has offered you. Get your depreciation deduction done right. Find a reputable accountant who really knows what he or she is doing and make sure to double-check your return before filing. Ultimately, if you miss out on your fair return, it's nobody's fault but yours. Increase your financial intelligence and f- increase your financial intelligence and find good advisors to help you along the way. In our next chapter, we're going to talk about what types of income are the best, what types are the worst, and everything in between. Chapter seven, key points. Number one, depreciation is like magic. It creates money out of thin air. Two, deductions over a set number of years on hard assets, such as buildings, are called depreciation. Deductions over a set number of years for intangible assets, such as recipes, are called amortization. Three, many people don't take full advantage of their depreciation and amortization deductions either because of ignorance or laziness, or both, on their part or their accountant's part. Four, ultimately, you're the one responsible to make sure you're not cheating yourself. Always double-check your return. Tax Strategy Number Seven Cost Segregations of Business and Rental Properties a few years ago, I was looking at the forum of a CPA website and noticed some chatter about cost segregations, pulling personal property out of real property classification to allow for quicker depreciation. What surprised me was the amount of debate about whether cost segregations were legal. About 50% of the CPAs in the discussion felt they were illegal or admitted that they didn't know if they were, they were legal. Another 30% thought they were very aggressive tax planning. So here is the real scoop about cost segregations. Not only are cost segregations legal, but they are specifically sanctioned by the IRS and technically required by law. Now, the IRS doesn't enforce the requirement because it means less revenue for them, and the IRS knows that the lazier the taxpayer and/or accountant, the more revenue the United States Treasury makes. Here is how you can tell they are legal. First. The IRS has an audit guide to tell their agents how to handle cost segregation. This guide is also useful for taxpayers. Anyone can see this guide on the IRS website at irs.gov. Second, and most important, is how the law treats cost segregations. When you do a cost segregation on a building you have owned for several years, you must file a Form 3115, Change in Accounting Method. There are two types of changes on this form. One is a change from one correct method of accounting to another correct method of accounting. This is like when you change your basic accounting method from the cash method of accounting to the accrual method of accounting. See Chapter 18 for explanations of cash and accrual methods of accounting. The other change is a change from an incorrect method of accounting to a correct method of accounting. Guess where a cost segregation falls. That's right. It's a change from an incorrect method of accounting to a correct method of accounting. When you don't do a cost segregation, you are doing your depreciation incorrectly. Here are a couple of hints for doing a cost segregation. First, according to the IRS audit guide, you must employ professionals to do the study. You can either use engineers or CPAs. In my network of CPA firms, Tax-Free Wealth Network, we use both an engineer and a CPA to do the cost segregation study. Next, remember that you can do a cost segregation at any time. You don't have to do it when you first buy the property. This allows for some great tax planning as you want to do the cost segregation in a year when you are in the highest tax bracket so that you get the most tax benefits. Remember that depreciation is a deduction, not a credit, so your benefit is based on your tax bracket. We'll discuss credits in Chapter 10. A deduction in a high tax bracket is always better than a deduction in a low tax bracket and here is a piece of information very few people understand. When you do a cost segregation, no matter how many years later you get to catch up on all the depreciation you would have taken if you had done your cost segregation on the year you purchased the property. So if you have earned the property for several years, you will have a lot of extra deductions in the year you do the cost segregation. Be sure to meet with your tax advisor and ask about cost segregation for all of your business and investment in real estate. You could be missing out on a lot of tax savings otherwise. All right. I'm getting out of here. Thanks for hanging out with me, guys. I'll be back later.